You're listening to The Middle, the show about the Australia-China connection. We're bringing greater balance and broad expertise to all aspects of the Australia-China relationship. This episode is supported by ACB News. Welcome to The Middle, the show about one of the most vital debates before us all, the rise of China and what it means for Australia. We are coming to you from 2SER Studios in the heart of Sydney on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. And my name is Peter Frey, the co-director for the Centre for Media Transition. And joining me today is my co-presenter and esteemed colleague from the University of Technology, Sydney, Walling Sun. Hello, Walling. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. That's great. Uh, you can hear The Middle on 2SER, across the Community Broadcast Network, and on your favourite podcast app. And even better still, you can see it with Mandarin subtitles on YouTube. More details about that at the end of the show. So, Wanning, uh, before we start, we should just, it, we might be a good idea to explain why we call this show The Middle. Yes, indeed. And we think there are a number of reasons. The first, of ob- uh, obviously, is the fact that Australia is increasingly caught between the US and China. So it's caught in the middle. Second, China is, of course, the Middle Kingdom. Right. And third, um, many people in Australia, particularly the Chinese communities here, are caught in the middle of the debate. Yeah, that's right. And, and so we think there's a productive, if you like, middle path uh, through this debate. And, and we come to this uh, show trying to shed more light than heat. Um, does that cover everything? Yes, unless you want to also consider some philosophical basis on which we can proceed. For instance, um, Lee, uh, Dr. Li Wei, you probably, uh, or should we call you Wei Li, just to be consistent, <laughs> that uh, you've heard of the Zhongyong Zhidao, Confucius, mm. the, Confucius, the idea of being in the middle. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to go with the Western philosophy, and then you can um, go with the Aristotle's idea of the doctrine of the golden mean. So it's also about being mm. in the middle. Oh, very well. I always learn something new from you, Wani, every, every show. Uh, so today's show is all about trade. Uh, as many of us know, China is Australia's biggest training, trading partner. In fact, the two-way trade between the two countries is now worth about $184 billion. So whether you see this as an inconvenient truth or not, Australia's prosperity very much depends on China's growth. Uh, but the picture is not clear-cut. Is no, that? indeed, trading with China is actually very complex and it's tangled up with many other things. People in Australia, I think, are now divided into uh, over what to think about these issues. Some say that, uh, well, China is one of our is our the biggest trading partner, so we should just focus on trade and not not worry about other things. Others think that that we are too reliant on China and they were held ransom by our reliance on China. So we should go somewhere else and find some other trading partners. And people in China, uh, and Greg can correct me if I'm wrong, and people in China, including the ordinary people in the street and the top leadership, are also not very happy with the way that uh, Australians talk about China because they think that you're doing business with us, we are your biggest trading partner, but at the same time, um, you're not very friendly to us. 
So the, the going uh, expression in China to describe Australia's attitude is uh, something like you're eating the food that we cook, but at the same time you want to smash the cooking pot. Is that right, Greg? Have you heard of that expression? I haven't heard that expression, but certainly cab drivers tell me that they, you know, when I say, they ask me where I'm from when I say Australia, they have a tirade about Australia. So in the general impression is that somehow or other we're ungrateful or why is there hostility towards China from the average person in the street, if you like. There you mm. go. Okay. So um, I think we've almost had a self-introduction to help us unreve- reveal the, uh, un- uh, unravel the complex uh, questions we we're just posing and a few others besides. We have two very qualified people in the studio. We have Dr. Wei Li from the University of Sydney Business School and joining us on the, on, from Beijing uh, on Skype, we have Professor Greg McCarthy, who's the BHP Chair of Australian Studies at Peking University. Welcome, Waylee. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, before you start, maybe uh, you first, Greg, and then you, Waylee, could tell us a little bit about yourselves uh, in relation to this subject. I mean, how did you first get interested in the re- this relationship between Australia and China in, re- in terms of trade? Um, Greg? Sure. About six years ago, I was working at Adelaide University and we were doing a lot of trade with China and I wanted to develop a postgraduate course. So I developed relationships with China's university and then followed on from that. Three years ago, I was appointed the BHB Chair of Australian Studies at Peking University. And there again, I teach and I think about China. And so what I was struck by was the great opportunities and potential in teaching Chinese students. But the sense in which people regarded them as some sort of threat or as inferior. So that pushed me into arguing with my colleague, Shenin Song, to write about the the relationship between how we think about different cultures and different uh, China. And that mm. made me think about modernity. We led to a number of articles and then we're finishing a book on thinking about how do you govern uh, the growth of China. So the rise of China has changed the world as we know it. And I was sort of caught in the middle of trying to think through this changing world. Yeah, well. So that's what I've been working on. Okay. Well, you are the perfect person uh, to be on the show today, as is Wei Li. Wei Li, how did you get engaged with this sort of topic? Um, it's actually a very interesting to- uh, journey for me because um, when I started this project on Chinese investment in Australia, I was finishing my PhD. And my PhD is actually on uh, water governance in China. Um, so I have many people ask me why you actually shift from, you know, working on water and environment and all the way to, to investment. I guess the main reason was when I was looking at water governance in China, my approach is more looking at from a local perspective. So I look at how local governments and local enterprise basically take the approach of sustainability and also work with each other um, to adopt better technologies. So when it came to the topic of investment, I think I was equally taking the same approach. So rather than taking a very macro approach, look at um, the overall investment flows, um, my, my understanding is much more important actually to look at what the companies are doing, what the firms are doing. 
doing. So um, that's why six years ago, we, um, together with Hans, Professor Hans Handrisky in Sydney University, um, working together with KPNG, we realized there's very little information about Chinese investment in Australia, particularly from the firm perspective, you know, who are investing, which industry they have gone in, and also, um, you know, what are their strategies. So as there's so little information, they actually motivate me to go into this research. And um, it has been going on for six years. So I'm very pleased with that. Yeah, and I'd I like to follow up with that report, uh, Wei, because um, you and Hans um, uh, have a very interesting title for the report. Uh, and it's called Demystifying Chinese Investment in Australia. And you actually wrote an article in the conversation about this. So my question to you is, what is there to demystify? What are the some of the uh, misconceptions or perceptions, if you like, about the uh, Chinese investment in Australia? Yeah, I think um, there was lots of uncertainty and lots of debates about the nature and the rise of Chinese investment into Australia. I think there's several uh, misconceptions about Chinese investments. So, for example, the idea of Chinese investment is very big and very large. You often come into the media debate. I think whenever you see, you know, there's some Chinese companies buying agricultural land or buying a piece of land to build apartments, um, then the natural conclusion is to say, oh, China is buying all the agricultural land and buying all the property in Sydney, uh, which is not true because we know that China is our ninth largest foreign investors and it's still behind US, UK, Belgium, Japan and some of the traditional you know, foreign investors in this even, country. Even behind Belgium. Even behind Belgium, Singapore and Luxembourg. So we sometimes felt that China is very big but China is not big in terms of foreign investment in Australia. And the other misconception is usually we think that Chinese companies are all state-owned enterprise and they're all controlled by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think our research has shown that this is the case initially with investment into mining and resource areas. But then as investment diversifies into other areas, we're actually seeing more investment by private companies. Mm-hmm. And those companies are, you know, from private um, backgrounds and they're coming from different regions in China. Um, in fact, in 2007, 17, 83% of the transactions are done by private companies from 83, China. As many, yeah. as many as that. Yes, and in terms of value, is 60% of the transaction value are done by private companies. So certainly I think um, Chinese companies are not all state-owned in Australia and they are not controlled by the state. I think the last one is that um, we kind of very easily to think that Chinese companies are here to take resources out of China, you know, whatever they're here to buy and then they take it out of uh, out of Australia, sorry, and ship it to China. I think that was the case again, you know, uh, to a certain extent reflecting what's happening in the mining and energy sector. Mm. However, as I just said, that uh, as investment diversify into other sectors, and we have seen that investment have gone up in health care, agribusiness, commercial real estate, renewable energies as well. So in those industries that um, Chinese companies are much more keen to integrate in the local Australian economy and also producing goods that are not just for the Australian market, but also for the international market as well. That's a great segue also to Greg, because Greg, you've coined this term changst which is a sensational term, uh, very, very imaginative. Just talk, talk us through this idea of chanks and how it's played out in the context of trade. 
Sure. What I was trying to think through there, I was at a conference in Europe and this idea of China and angst in Europe was beginning to come forward. I put the two words together, China and angst, to get mm. this idea of chanks. So Shenling and Song and I began to think through why is there so much angst? And we'd sort of seen it from the student perspective of teachers. And then we sort of began to look at the investment and sort of we put together a, a range of case studies from Chinalco to Cubby Station to Kidman Station, the real estate one we've just heard about and education to try to argue that there's an ex excessive angst about China that doesn't seem proportional to the amount of investment which we just heard, which is relatively small in, in general terms. But for some senses, we wanted to point forward that when you get to the issue of China and investment, it slips over into quite racist dialogue. Mm. And that's from parliamentarians, from the media, from reporters. And they don't sort of realise that sense of racism. So we wanted to put together where is this angst coming from? It follows on from a number of other writings, of course. Uh, David Walker's argument about anxiety, Australia is an anxious nation, but also Gus and Haig's argument that uh, we're a paranoid nation. So we put together this theory that if you looked at where is this angst coming from, it's a part of our settler colonial anxiety, mm. but it became far ex exaggerated in terms of what the cases were. Chilauka was a battle between three major uh, resource companies, over buying at a, a small share of Rio Tinto. Now, big companies try to buy each other out. So why did it become an anxiety? Why did Kevin Rudd's government try to block it? Then Cubby Station was an interesting one where this was in receivership. And Barnaby Joyce did a van wagon process of anti-China. And that got publicity. So we looked at that. The Kidman Estate, again, was an issue that we thought, um, or it's 1%. But in each case, we could say, well, there were national interests. There's nothing wrong with having national interest debate. But we're interested to see how the anxiety grew. So we put together this China angst and that yeah. it's a part of the rise of China. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Greg, that, Just, that, that notion of the uh, national interest is very interesting. And we, we'd like to come back to that uh, later on in the show. But in the meantime, also, I would like to go back to Wei and ask you um, um, a question about the trade. Uh, you know, trade is a big topic. Trade with China is a big thing. And we hear and read about it in the media all the time. But to ordinary people uh, who read about it, they actually don't really know much what's going on, what kind of uh, Chinese investment is going on, What in what areas um, has there been a lot of investment, in what areas has not been uh, have not received much investment from China. And could you just give us a uh, trade with China 101 on, on that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think trade with China has been going really very well, despite of all the geopolitical, you know, debates in, in, in the recent months. And it's quite surprisingly that um, export to China has gone up really a lot. So in terms of goods trade for 2017, it has gone up 21.8%. The service trade that where I am in, in the university, you know, the amount of students that are coming from China is also coming up. Um, so it's gone to 17 0.9%. So I think trade is going on very well, particularly export to China. So that's the other misconception that when you look at imports from China, the growth is definitely not as quick and fast compared to, you know, 
export to China. And also the volume of goods that is coming from China is much lower than the volume of goods that is going from Australia to China. So um, you're talking about 115 billions of goods going to China and you're talking about, um, you know, like um, 70 or 80 billion of goods that is coming from China to Australia. So so definitely, I think from the trade perspective that Australia is doing very well with China. From the investment perspective, um, it's also doing quite well. You know, until I think um, 2013 and 14, Australia was one of the largest recipient of Chinese investment over the world. And up to now, I think we still think that Australia is the second largest recipient of mm-hmm. Chinese investment investment in the world, you know, considering how small our country is, Mm. you know, there's so much trust coming from China to come into Australia. Mm. And the investment sector has changed quite a lot. Um, So that's one thing I think it's important to understand Chinese companies and investment as very dynamic, and they change quite rapidly. Mm. I think mainly is because the Chinese market is very dynamic. And the Chinese industry also have undergone a lot of reform. And so um, just following on from that uh, way, that the free trade agreement between Australia and China um, seems like, according to what you've just said, worked actually quite well. But uh, there is still this kind of uh, 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 perception that uh, the the, the trade is not fair to Australia and it's a win for China and loss for Australia. Is Is that a... So that's not... Is that a, a accurate sort of perception or? Um, I think with global trade, um, you have to understand that there's a certain extent that, um, you know, there's a role for government to make sure that the distribution of the benefits is actually equal. So, of course, you have industries that benefit more from, you know, trade and industries don't benefit as much as it is um, from trade. So I think there's a role for the government to play. Um, the other point I want to make is that sometimes we don't, we, we tend to forget that a lot of the goods that we export um, actually have, have a lot of the service components that are embedded in it. So even those goods are exported, for example, by the University of Sydney to the students from China. But in the end, there's lots of service that's been provided by lots of small and medium business in Australia into the university to support that trade. So so I think in the end, if we just look at the final export, it seems like it's just a few industries are doing that. But actually, when, when we look at the goods that we're exporting, for example, like the agriculture goods, you know, we wouldn't be able to export that amount of agriculture goods had we not have an industry, you know, that is really supporting the high quality agriculture products we have and that's a lot of service going to it you know there's fertilizer the supply chain digitization you know to make sure that all the quality are very very stable and up Mm -hmm. to high standard Mm -hmm. so those people probably although they are not involved directly in the export industries but they didn't realize that actually they are major components are they supplying a major service to the export industry i think that's something that we need to actually tell people about it Okay. As in, yeah, well, uh, Greg, uh, just go back to this national interest question. So there is a, this narrative that says we're too reliant on China, that our national interest is somehow compromised. And I, I think you raised, raised a couple of ways of looking at that. One, of course, is that there's a race component in that. But is, there, is it just looking at it in a kind of more purist trade kind of context? Are we too reliant on China, do you think? I think there's a legitimate concern in, in relationship to particular sectors. If you looked at the mining industry, you've got four major corporations who 
you know, control the resources that go to China. Eventually, China is going to wind down its coal. So mm. that's an issue that Australia has yet to come to terms with in terms of our national interest. Um, and therefore, uh, that's a concern. That when you look at education, I think it's a very important one is to sort of break that down into its components. And where I think the uh, we're right about the sense in which it has big flow-on effects. So when universities talk about the China trade, they put together a multiplier of 31 billion. But then when you break that down into where Chinese students are going, and there's 180,000 of them in Australia at the moment, if you look at the university sector, then they're at about five universities. Um, that's it. And so they're dependent on, on China, UNSW, Sydney, ANU, Melbourne and, and uh, Monash. So they're the ones who are dependent. The rest of the country are desperate to get more Chinese students. So. I think that's one of the issues that you face, which is that certain sectors have a certain dependency. But often we forget when we look at China trade is that kind of everything we buy from television screens to computers, T-shirts are all reduced in price because we buy them from China. So mm. when you think about national interest, um, the general feeling I hear is that there are certain sectors who are dependent and we'll uh, have to think about that. Uh, but I don't see in any case where China will turn off the trade. I don't think they can stop international students coming. I don't think middle-class parents will want to do that. Where the issue will come will be if the trade war between China and the US gets worse, yeah. and if that affects yeah. the middle-class uh, income in China, then they won't have the money to send their children overseas. So that's one issue that probably will see a softening, I think, of the of the uh, China student flow, and that's got to do with internal rather than national security. Mm. We, where it gets blown up in terms of national security is claims that you know Chinese students are spies, that they affect economic freedom, and I think the report from uh, the colleagues at UTS have proved that to be totally blown out of proportion. You know, four cases turn into a threat of, of mm. academic security. So I think that we blow these out of proportion, and that's why I think the, the China angst is important to think about, is that why do we take four cases and turn it into the issue of 180 students mm. being a threat to Australia? So mm. that's the way I look. Yes, OK. You are listening to The Middle, the show that's dedicated to exploring the relationship between Australia and China. Today in the studio, we're joined by Dr. Li Wei, or Dr. Wei Li, sorry, I should say Dr. Wei Li, <laughs> University of Sydney's business school in um, also joining us by Skype is Professor Greg McCarthy, uh, who is a BHP Chair of Australian Studies of Peking University. Peter. Thanks, Wanning. Uh, Wei, you and Hans have surveyed 50 Chinese executives in Australia. Yeah. Mm. What did you ask them? And did they shed light on why the Chinese investment ha in Australia has declined? You know, maybe you could just talk us through um, a bit of that, their thinking. Yeah, so we did a survey this year in 2018 in May. So this is the third time we actually run the survey. Yeah. So every two years we run a survey with Chinese executives in Australia. Uh, many about their perception of investing in Australia, the challenge that they face and the performance they have. And also sometimes we ask them about, you know, their, 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 their perception about the future of business in Australia. So um, this year was really interesting because it's for the first year we started to notice that some of the Chinese companies feel like they're less welcome than before. Um, but at the same time, what we're seeing is um, a lot of Chinese companies become much more mature than before as 
well. So in the sense that in terms of the challenge they identify, for example, in the initial survey we had, uh, mainly the challenge they had is how to do due diligence and how to find projects and also how to, you know, in the end, handle with media um, and also the problem with infrastructure in Australia. Um, but this time when we ran the survey, we asked them about the challenge they found. So we found that actually a lot of them figure out that the main challenge is to do with human resource, how to find the right people. Mm-hmm. And the challenge is how to work uh, with other managers within the companies and how to actually work with other board members um, in the board. So, and also how to identify business strategies, you know, in the current um, political environment. So, I found that actually a lot of the Chinese companies are aware of the challenge they face, but at the same time, you know, by having their experience in Australia, they also become more mature as well. Yeah, they're becoming more enmeshed in a way. Yes, yes. I I think that they take a much more uh, rational approach um, to to their investment. So I think that's the other thing we have to understand that uh, quite a lot of the Chinese companies, when they internationalize in Australia, we found that Australia is actually the first country uh, they've they've invest overseas yeah. so so it's not just you know a, a first country but it's also a first developed country so there's quite a lot of difference for them and there's huge amount of learning journey for them mm-hmm. so we have found that the Chinese companies are very quick to learn um, there's definitely you know uh, leveraging what they have learned in Australia and also um, transfer that back to China to make their companies into a global enterprise which is something that they want to do Mm, so what's what's your prediction about trade and, and investment uh, from China in an, say in the next five years? I think trade probably would um, um, continue in the sense that I think um, what's happening with trade between Australia and China is that um, the two countries are highly complementary so in the sense that what China really needs is what Australia has. Mm. So I think what's um, underlying this um, trade relationship is not because of, you know, any other non-economic reason is really because the two countries economically are very complementary to each other. With the investment, I think it's a little bit challenging because we're seeing that um, it's it's been a debate that is not just happening in Australia, but also globally as well. So I think that Australia is a country in their global agenda where it has to contribute to, you know, the global agenda in terms of, you know, uh, how do you handle with Chinese investments, mm-hmm. you know, particularly into sensitive areas. So we have seen that there's quite a lot of difficulties for Chinese investment into infrastructure infrastructure areas and also into some of the sensitive areas. I think some of those um, concerns are legitimate, particularly what we're seeing now with um, a global risk of um, cybersecurity and also digitization. I think it's not just for Australia to handle Chinese investment, but it's also for Australia how do you handle investment in general? How do you handle you know digitization, the 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 future of digitization? How do you make sure that data are properly protected? So I think it would it would settle down for for a while, and also I think on the Chinese side that there's also um, there's lack of a momentum as what we see 
seen in the few years ago for Chinese companies to say that we have to go out. We have to go out to invest no matter where because as long as we go out, it will be good for us. I don't think that's happening now in China okay, anymore. I think um, Chinese companies are also becoming much more rational in terms of what, what they want to go in the international market. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Belt and Road Initiative would also play a role as well. Yeah. I think um, this is going to be um, uh, uh, at the central level driving, you know, at least initially a lot of the central SOEs and SOEs uh, will probably have their priority in the Belt and Road Initiative regions. And then, of course, the private companies, when they see their opportunities, they would they will follow the, the SOEs. So what, what is your advice for the Australian business sector wishing to attract a Chinese investment in Australia? What China has been traditionally very good at doing is the manufacturing part, which is putting assembly things together. And it was really weak at R&D, weak at uh, process, weak at marketing and weak at after sales. And um, these are the area where China wants to really catch up. And that's driving what China is growing for the next five years. So when I see that, you know, um, if Australian companies are specializing any of those areas, you know, service R&D process, sales marketing. I think there's great opportunity for Australia and China to collaborate. Greg, I have one final question for you, which is what is your advice for government leaders uh, dealing with China? Big question, I know, but if you could have a crack at that one in a few secs, it would be great. So I think we've seen a change in the government's attitude with uh, the Foreign Minister Payne coming here this week. Uh, I think that was a big change. I think we have to stop... uh, China being entering domestic politics, that's mm. what's mm-hmm. been happening. And uh, I think we have to be careful about what is national interest. And mm-hmm. we also we have to be careful about how the Trump regime is trying to set up a two-sphere world. One-sphere world, which is American technology, and that's to do with phones, it's got to do with Huawei and China. And to isolate China out of what we've just heard, their attempt to become much more R&D uh, and so on. So we've got to be very careful not to be caught on one side of that and stay in the middle. So my advice to government is to keep staying in the middle because America is trying to push us in one direction. And we can see that we have to be able to stay in the middle to survive uh, the battle between two giants. Well, that's a perfect segue to uh, the end of the middle for this episode. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Wei Li. Um, Thank you so much for coming. And thank you, Greg, for uh, getting up. Well, I know you're way up anyway. But anyway, thank you for talking to us from Beijing. And um, if you missed anything from today's show, please check out the podcast on 2SER uh, on the website, 2SER.com. And for our Mandarin-speaking listeners, we have a Mandarin subtitle version of the show on YouTube. So just search 2SER for the middle. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Peter Frey. And goodbye from me, Wani. Thank you for listening. Bye.